0: Welcome to the Faith and More podcast. This is a transdenominational podcast. All are welcome and safe here, no matter what your faith is or isn't. Hello, my name is Reverend Angel Wise, and I'll be your host. I am an ordained transdenominational minister, director of Oblates Perpetual Light, intuitive healer, Kabbalist, and life coach. I firmly believe that the divine works through people every day to help us. These angels and saints are so very humble. Many of us don't know they exist or existed each week we'll explore the lives of these amazing beings we will also explore topics that can help your faith no matter what it is or isn't the goal of this show is to encourage educate inspire uplift strengthen and heal you and your faith so be sure to follow and subscribe so you never miss an episode enjoy the show Hello, everyone, and welcome to season six. It's so wonderful to have. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, I guess it's funny too. <laughs> welcome to episode one of season six. And I so hope that the wait for season six wasn't too long. Uh, what, seven days? So that's pretty much what we do normally. So again, the people last week that were concerned, either uh, in silly voices or out there in the crowd listening on the Internet, um, have no fear. We are here. We're not going anywhere. We're not stopping every Sunday uh, for the past uh, year and three quarters. Would it be two years in September uh, which is just around the bend that we've been doing this and we will continue to do this. So, what are we talking about today? Well, wait a minute. Hello. How are you? Welcome to the show. I almost just skipped right by that, didn't I? Oh, shame on me. Tisk, tisk. Welcome, everyone. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for finding us. It's my deepest hope and sincerest prayer that you find everything that you're searching for in a faith based podcast here and more. And if you're returning, Infinite thanks, blessings, and love for being a long-time listener, lover, and supporter of the show. It is because of you that this show is here. Okay, so see, I was getting all antsy about the new season and today's topic. I was just wanting to jump right into it. So let us do that. What are we talking about today? How about celibacy in the church? And why are we talking about celibacy in the church? On all shows, why this show? Well, because it's been something that's been in the news a lot lately with the uh, Mother Superior Gerlach case in Arlington, Texas, uh, which we've done talk. We've talked about that case in the past two book nooks. If you haven't had a chance to check those out, please do. There's always great information in the book nooks that you'll only get there, that you will not get on the show itself. Uh, So. Yes, uh, as updates go, unfortunately, uh, Mother Superior Gerlock lost her lawsuit against uh, the bishop. And, um, you know, the, the judge just said legally, as far as civil law goes, there were no violations, which, you know, at first I kind of agreed with Then, uh, giving it more thought. I was thinking differently. Now, let me explain. The anytime you go onto somebody's premises to do a search or um, to take items for evidence, uh, you have to have a, a warrant to do that. Right. You just can't walk on somebody's property and, and take whatever you want to take and accuse them of whatever you want to accuse them of. You know, it has to be done through legal channels. You have to go to court. You have to, you know, Go before a judge, present your case to the judge, and then if the judge deems it's um, something that is needing to, or the district attorney, I should say, deems it's something that needs to be uh, investigated further, they will issue a warrant. So you can go on the property and uh, do your investigation and confiscate whatever you feel you need for uh, for the investigation as evidence. Uh, this was not done with uh with Mother Gerlach or the other nuns, because we have to remember that the entire convent, uh, the monastery, was raided by a bishop who, at that time, did not have jurisdiction over them. So at that point, he is trespassing. And not only that, it's theft. He's breaking and entering, He's taking their items, he took their computers and he took their cell phones. And a lot of you might be saying, well, what are Discoused Nuns? And those of you who are longtime listeners, what does Discoused mean? It means they don't wear shoes. Sandals, yes, shoes, no. Uh, so these Discoused Nuns, some people might be wondering, what are they even doing with computers and cell phones? Well, through the amazing blessing of the great Mother Natalia from the "What God Is Not" uh, podcast, she has explained many times on that show. If you haven't had a chance to check them out, please do. Uh, Mother Natalia, excuse me, Mother Natalia and um, Father Michael O'Loughlin are just two of the most amazing, loving beings you would ever, ever ever here. And if you have the blessing to meet them, wow. I mean, I haven't yet. I I pray that I do someday. She's only up in Ohio, so she's not very far from me, maybe a day's trip. But anywho, uh, Mother Natalia always says that they do have computers. Nuns have computers. And they do have what they call travel phones, which means that like if they get to go to the grocery store or something like that, they take a cell phone with them. If they have to go on a pilgrimage or a retreat that's off the premises of the monastery, um, they take a cell phone with them. Of course, it's for emergency purposes, for contact, uh, if you need to get a hold of the Mother Superior, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure there's it's no different with the sisters um, of this monastery that we're discussing. Uh, so in computers, they have computers. Uh, they've got to... They've got research and stuff that they do. They have contacts. They uh, make appointments. They have retreats that they schedule. So, you know, like anyone, computers are needed to facilitate that. So when this bishop at that time, who had no jurisdiction at that time, walked onto their property, which was not his or affiliated with his jurisdiction and walked in, confiscated their phones and their uh, computers for his invest personal investigation. Uh, to me, that was a violation of civil law. At that point, you're looking at civilian versus civilian. This person did not have jurisdiction nor a warrant to go on said property and or confiscate, which ends up being stealing their computers and their phones, which, as you all know, computers and phones are quite expensive. So these are now felony charges that you would be uh, considering. So my thoughts on this, my personal thoughts, wait a minute, let me let me run the disclaimer. The thoughts and views shared by the host are personal in nature, derived from years and years of study, contemplation, and experience. Listener discretion is advised. Please don't take the host's word for anything. Use it to spark your own curiosity and investigation to find out for yourself what is true and what is not Okay, so I had to play the disclaimer again these are just my personal thoughts. my personal thoughts are the big V, the Vatican. yes, they have huge amounts of control and even greater sources of power in government in the legal system, not only here in the United States but all over the world. So do I personally feel that the judge may have been swayed by the Vatican? Absolutely. There's no proof or evidence of that. I'm not alleging that. I'm just saying I personally feel that is the case, because if you break it down to legalities of, you know, A versus B, this bishop was... Definitely um, operating against the law. He was not in a legal right to uh, go on their premises to, you know, do what he did. And then, you know, again, as we talked about in the last book, Nook, he audio records um, confession from the mother superior uh, as he interrogated her after a major surgery and while she was still on medication. And, you know, she confessed to having a virtual affair over the phone and through video with this priest. Um, She has major illnesses. I'm not going to go through all that again. But he also has terminal brain cancer, the priest that she allegedly had this virtual affair with. So, I mean, it all comes down to, and they're saying, of course, the bishop is saying that she broke her vow of chastity. And, you know, that breaks it down into even more, you know, what does the church consider to be someone who is chaste? I mean, is it someone um, who does not have intercourse? Because she did not, Um, even to the point where they were um, grilling her about being late on her period one month. This is just outlandish, outlandish, folks. And the drama level is just off the charts. This is more than you would see in a movie or virtual uh, TV, uh, reality TV show or anything like that. It's just so goofy. But then, you know, you've got people behind the scenes and on the ground. there saying that all of this is a ploy by the bishop to shut down the monastery and to confiscate the property for his. Purposes. Even the people who don't, or family of the people who donated the land are saying that. So that prompts all of today's show. Why? What is going on? Why is there, how did it start this whole celibacy in the church? Um, Because it didn't begin that way. This is something that evolved over time. And even recently, Uh, Pope Francis was asked about this, the, the current Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, and he said he would be open to discussions of ending celibacy for priests and nuns. And so today's show is going to be discussing the history and background of that and giving you all some really fascinating information that I bet you didn't know. Did you know that there were popes? actual popes, that were not only married, they also had children. So we're going to be exploring that and more in today's show. Okay, so I have two articles that I'm going to be going through today. Of course, links to these articles will be in the show description. So the first article was actually from Wikipedia. I normally and generally do not go from articles on there, but this one is done quite well. And I believe you will agree with me on this. For many years of the church's history, celibacy was considered optional based on the customs of the times. It is assumed by many that most of the 12 apostles were married and had families. Now, we all have to remember, which we all too often forget, is that the 12 apostles, as well as Jesus, were Jewish There was no Christianity yet. They were practicing Jews, and they were very strict practicing Jews. So that being said, uh, the Jewish faith at that time, and still somewhat today, um, believed in prearranged marriages. So the parents from two families would get together, and they would come together and, and talk about you know, their children and decide if they were compatible, if the families were compatible, um, and, and so on and so forth. And then that is what took place. Um, and then they were usually married at quite a young age. I believe uh, boys are considered to be um, it's 13. And for girls, it's 12. So they could be married as young as that age. And I know that's got a lot of people gasping, you know, but back in, we're talking way, way, way years, thousands of years ago, that wasn't out of the ordinary. So again, keep that in mind, that the 12 apostles were probably married. We know for sure that Peter was. So the New, the New Testament, Mark 1, through 31, Matthew 8 through 14 through 15, Luke 4:38 through 39, 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 12, and Titus 1, 6 depicts at least Peter as being married, and bishops, priests, and deacons of the early church were often married as well. In a study of ancient records, the testimony of the church fathers, synodal legislation, and papal decretals in the following centuries, a married clergy in greater or lesser numbers was a feature of the life of the church. Celibacy was not required for those ordained and was accepted in the early church, particularly by those in monastic life. Although various local church councils had demanded celibacy of the clergy in a particular area at the Second Laternal, excuse me, Lateran Council in 1139, the whole of the Latin Church of the Catholic Church decided to accept men for ordination only after they had taken a promise of celibacy. This applies to leadership of the church. Okay, so we have St. Peter. From the year 30 to 33, he was a pope, and also from the year 64 to 68, He was a pope. We know he had a mother-in-law. It's mentioned in the gospel in Matthew 8, 14 through 15, Luke 4, 38, Mark 1, 29 through 31. And it says his mother-in-law was healed by Jesus at her home in Capernaum. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 asks whether others have the right to be accompanied by Christian wives, as does Cephas, also known as Peter. Clement of Alexandria wrote, When the blessed Peter saw his own wife led out to die, he rejoiced because of her summons and her return home, and called to her very encouragingly and comfortingly, addressing her by name and saying, Remember the Lord. Such was the marriage of the blessed and their perfect disposition toward those dearest to them. So, this is under the categories of popes who were legally married, okay? Next is Felix III, 483 to 492. He was widowed before his election as Pope. Um, he was the son of a priest. He fathered two children, uh, one of whom was the mother of Pope Gregory the Great. Next is H, or Excuse me, Hormicidus, Hormisdas. H-O-R-M-I-S-D-A-S, He was a pope from 514 to 523, widowed before he took holy orders, and he was the father of Pope Silvarius. Adrian II, who was pope from 867 to 872, he married to Stefania before he took holy orders. She was still living when he was elected pope and resided with him in the Lateran Palace. He had a daughter as well. His wife and daughter both resided with him until they were murdered by a Lutherians, brother of Anastasius Bibliothecarius, the church's chief librarian. Yeah, I know. Crazy drama. Next is John the 17th, uh, was in 1003. I guess it was only for one year. Married before his election as pope, he had three sons. All of his children became priests. Uh, Pope Clement the Fourth, twelve sixty five to twelve sixty eight, married before taking holy orders. He had two daughters. Both of his children entered a convent. Um, Pope Honorius the Fourth, from twelve eighty five to twelve eighty seven, widowed before entering the clergy. He had two sons. Next is a list of fa- uh, popes who fathered illegitimate children before their holy orders. So we have Pope Pius II from 1458 to 1464. He was not married, and he had at least two children, both of them before he formally entered the clergy. The first child fathered while in Scotland died in infancy. A second child fathered while in Strasbourg, with a Breton woman named Elizabeth, died fourteen months later. He del- delayed, excuse me, becoming a cleric because of the requirement of chastity. Next is Pope Innocent VIII, 1484-1492, to was not married, had two children, both born. Before he entered the clergy, married elder son Francesco Cebo to the daughter of Lorenzo de Medici, who in return obtained Cardinal's hat for his 13-year-old son Giovanni, who became Pope Leo X. His daughter, Teodorina Cebo, married Geraldo Uso de Mera, <laughs> something like that. Uh, so, yeah, Pope innocent, not so innocent, right? Clement, Pope Clement VII, 1523 to 1534, not married, relationship with a slave girl, possibly Simonita da Calavecchio. They had one child, identified as Alessandro de Medici, who became the Duke of Florence. The next category are popes who are known to or suspected of having fathered illegitimate children after receiving holy orders. Pope Julius II, 1503 to 1513, not married. Three daughters, three illegitimate daughters. This is while he was pope, one of whom was Felice della Rovere, born in 1483, 20 years before his election as Pope, and 12 years after his enthronement as Bishop of Lausanne. This the schismatic concebulum of Pisa, excuse me if I slaughtered that, which sought to dispose him in 1511, also accused him of being a sodomite. Pope Paul III, 1534 to 1549, not married, uh, Silvia Ruffini as a mistress. Yes, three sons and one daughter, four children with his mistress, held off ordination in order to continue his lifestyle, fathering four illegitimate children, three sons and one daughter by Silvia Ruffini. After his appointment as Cardinal, Deacon, and Santi Casimo and Domenio, he broke his relations with her in 1513 he made his illegitimate son, Pierre Luigi Farnese, the first Duke of Parma. Well, that was nice of dad to do, don't you think, since he ended up abandoning mom and leaving him and his other sisters and brothers to, you know, make him a Duke. And I'm sorry, folks, I, I don't mean to be sarcastic about this, but, you know, the whole, um, it's not just a celibacy thing, but the whole cheating and Mistress thing, you know that's that's one of my buttons and that's my problem and something I have issues with that I need to work on. So, next is Pope Pius IV from fifteen fifty nine to fifteen sixty five. He was not married. Allegedly, he had three children. One was born. One was a son born in fifteen forty one or fifteen forty two. He also had two daughters. Next is Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. From 1572 to 1585, not married, but he had an affair with Maddalena Fulicini. And yes, they had children received the ecclesiastical tonsure in Bologna in June 1539 and subsequently had an affair that resulted in the birth of Giacomo Bonacampagni in 1548. Giacomo remained illegitimate, with Gregory later appointing him gonfalonier of the church, governor of the Castel, Sant'Angelo and Fermo. Next is Pope Leo the Twelfth, from 1823 to 1829. Not married, allegedly had three. As a young prelate, he came under suspicion of having a liaison with the wife of a Swiss guard, soldier, and a nuncio in Germany, allegedly fathered three illegitimate children. And the, the list continues. Pope's alleged to be Sexually active during pontificate, uh, Pope Sergius III, from 904 to 911, was not married and has is believed to have at least had one child. Accused by opponents of being the illegitimate father of Pope John, the eleventh, by Maurizio, such accusations, excuse me, accusations accusations lay in Leopold of Cremon's antipodesis. And the Liber Pontificalis, the accusations have discrepancies with another early source. The analyst Fladord uh, John the Eleventh was brother of Alberic the Second, the later being the offspring of Morosia and her husband Alberic the First. So John II may have been the son of Morosia and Alberic the First. Okay, next is John the Tenth. to 9.28, not married, had affairs with Theodora and Marzia. No children, had romantic affairs with both Theodora and her daughter Marzia, according to Leopold of Cremona in his Antipodosis. So as we see, it just goes on and on and on. Next is Pope John the Seventh. 955-964, Nine fifty five through nine sixty four no, he was not married. Accused by adversaries of adultery and incest, Benedict Sorakti noted that he had a collection of women. They testified about his adultery, which they did not see with their own eyes, but nonetheless knew with certainty he had fornicated with the widow of Rainier, with Stefania, with Stefana, his father's concubine with widow Anna, and with his own niece, and he made a sacred palace into a whorehouse, according to the Chamberlain. John was a Christian Caligula, whose crimes were rendered particularly horrific by the office he held. Some sources report that he died eight days after being stricken by paralysis while in the act of adultery. Others, that he was killed by the jealous husband while in the act of committing adultery. So, messy either way. <laughs> Jeez, old Pete's. Pope Alexandria VI, 1492-1503. Not married, he had relationships with Vinoza de Catenae and Giulia Farnes. Yes, he had children. Had a long affair with Vinoza, while still a priest, and before he became Pope. And by her, had his illegitimate children. children uh, Cesare... Giovanni, Jeff, and Lucrezia, a later mistress, next, <laughs> Julia, was the sister of Alessandro, giving birth to a daughter, Laura, while Alexander was in his 60s and reigning as Pope. Alexander fathered at least seven and possibly as many as 10 illegitimate children, doing much to promote his family's interests using his offspring to build alliances with a number of important dynasties. So I think you see the underlying thing or theme, especially back in those days and probably still today, is it's all about political power. You know, these people, these popes, were, had extreme, you could almost say infinite power. And what that does to a person is just, it literally can drive them mad. And as you see with a lot of these popes, it did that and more, that they just were so power hungry that even though they had infinite power, they wanted more. And if you do a historical deep dive into this, folks, it's its all there. It's very messy. its It's very saddening quite depressing, um, especially if you are a Roman Catholic, uh, but you just have to keep in mind that you represent your faith. They represented their faith, you represent your faith. So don't let them sway you. Next is a list of popes who had relationships with men. Pope Paul II, 1464 through 1471, was not married, uh, alleged had an affair thought to have died of indigestion arising from eating melon, though some suggest he died while being sodomized by a page. Next is Pope Sixtus IV from 1471 to 1484, was not married. Um, Sixtus was a lover of boys and sodomites, awarding benefices and bishoprics in return for sexual favors. And nominating a number of young men as cardinals, some of whom were celebrated for their good looks. See, this is where these things come into play that, you know, we're finding more and more that's coming out in the, you know, unfortunately, in the priesthood. And this was back in, you know, the late 1400s. Next is Leo X, 1513 to 1521, was accused of... After his death of being a homosexual, some suggest he may have had ulterior motives in offering preference to certain people because he was attracted to them or had relations with them. Next is Pope Julius III from 1550 to 1555. An alleged affair with Innocenzo Siochi del Monte, alleged to have had a long love affair, which was a cause of public scandal. The Venetian ambassador at that time reported that Innocenzo shared the pope's bed. And honestly folks, if I know some of you're probably gasping that there are you know alleged homosexual popes and and clergy and just know that this is nothing new. If you open your Bible to Samuel 1 18, 1, you'll find a passage about King David and his beloved Jonathan. It says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And if you continue reading and studying, you will find that David and Jonathan were lovers. That at one point, David says that he loved Jonathan more than any woman Then he he could, uh, you know, he could not love a woman more than he loved Jonathan. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, folks, don't gasp and don't cover your mouths and your ears and say, oh, no, not my faith. Yes. I mean, this goes back to literally the beginning of time. It's it's there. It's there. So next we have and this is the last part relationships with women and men. So Pope Benedict the Ninth, who reigned from 1032 to 1044, and then in 1045, and then from 1047 to 1048, was accused by Bishop Beno, many vile adulteries, he referred to his third book of dialogues, to his rapes and other unspeakable acts. His life prompted Peter Damien to write an extended treatise against illicit sex, especially homosexuality, in his Liber Gomorra Damien accused Benedict IX of routine sodomy and bestiality and sponsoring orgies. So, as we can see, and as you all already know, scandal is nothing new to the church, nor will it continue to be anything new. New, which is quite sad, but again, this gets into the whole thing, I mean, in part. Power, definitely. Politics, definitely. And celibacy does have a role in all this. Now, next article I'm going to read is from Helen L. Owen from History News Network, and it says, When did the Catholic Church decide priests should be celibate? So she writes, the belief that religious figures should be celibate began long before the birth of Christianity. Ancient Druid priests were thought to have been celibates, and Aztec temple priests were expected to remain sexually abstinent. Other pre-Christian sects mandated that people chosen for their sacrificial offerings must be pure, meaning that they had never engaged in sex. Jesus lived a chaste life and never married, as... Many sources say, but there are other sources that say to the contrary. Not something we're going to get into in this show. And at one point in the Bible, it was referred to as an eunuch uh, or eunuch. Excuse me, <laughs> he was referred to as a eunuch in Matthew nineteen twelve. Though most scholars believe that this was intended metaphorically, the implication was that Jesus lived a celibate life like a eunuch. Now, again, remember, folks. Jesus was a Jew. He was a very hardcore practicing Jew. Um, he was of the highest rabbinical, excuse me, rabbinical caliber. He knew more than most of the rabbis and sages knew. So that tells you um, how much he studied, learned, and knew and lived his faith. So again, him being Jewish, he could have been married whether by choice or by arrangement. No, it doesn't say it in the Bible, but sometimes you have to read between the lines and the sources in the Bible, the books in the Bible, remember, were selected by man and selected by committees of men, most of which were some of these popes that we just talked about that chose the books of the Bible. So take that with a grain of salt. But just know that there are many other books of the Bible or books that were originally in the Bible that were removed that you can study and you will learn so much more. Um, you know, I highly recommend it just for educational purposes only, not to convert anyone, which I would never do, or to make you, you know, doubt your faith. Not at all. Again, as I said earlier, you are your faith. Don't look to anyone for your faith you imbue and live and are your faith your faith should shine from your actions from your speech from your thoughts from everything that you are but there's more to stories than what's in the book you know and again taking consideration that some of these popes that were named uh, had hands, or I should say Paul's, in deciding which books were in the Bible and which books weren't. So anyway, back to the article. The implication was that Jesus lived a celibate life like a eunuch. Many of his disciples were also chaste and celibate. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, recommends celibacy for women. Wasn't that very nice of Paul to recommend celibacy for women, but not for men? And we also have to keep in mind that uh, St. Paul never met Jesus. He was not one of the original disciples. And there's books in historical facts of uh, a huge rift between and disagreements between Paul and the original disciples, especially Peter, that they did not accept him as a representative of Christ or uh, Christianity. Because the Christianity we know today is mostly Pauline, which is Paul. Uh, and again, that's, that's another show in and of itself. We've got to remember, Paul was not a Jew. Paul was Roman. He worked for the Romans. He killed Jews. I mean, until his miraculous conversion. Um, but again, there is so much behind the scenes in history, history, excuse me, uh, historically about Paul that doesn't put him in such a good light. And maybe we will delve into that in a future show. Maybe not. Um, but again, it's all historically there. You know, just look, do your Google searches, get your textbooks and study. It's all there for you to learn. And again, don't let it sway your faith. You Again, you are your faith, but it's good to know. It's good to know what the truth is, or as close to the truth as we can get. So, Paul, in his first letter to Corinthians, recommends celibacy for women. He says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is well for them to remain single as I do. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So, if you can't sexually control yourself, then you should get married, he says. For it is better to marry than to become aflame with passion. I guess some of those popes should have read that part, huh? For, that was from 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. But the early Christian church had no hard and fast rule against clergy marrying and having children. Peter, a Galilee fisherman, whom the Catholic Church considers the first pope, was married. Some popes were the sons of popes. The first written mandate requiring priests to be chaste came in AD 304, Canon 33 of the Council of Alvira stated that all bishops, presbyters, and deacons, and all other clerics were to abstain completely from their wives and not to have children. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got to take a second on that. So they decreed that priests, deacons, popes, Everybody that was already married had to stop having intimacy and in relations with their wives. Even though the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply. And the Bible is all about the union of two people to procreate and to make babies. <laughs> you know? Uh, Sorry, I'm just a little speechless on that one. So anyway, it continues by saying, a short time later in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, oh, yeah, yeah, we should have a show on that one sometime, convened by Constantine, Emperor Constantine, rejected a ban on priest marrying requested by Spanish clerics. So Spanish clerics requested that they should be able to marry. He said, nay, nay. The practice of priestly celibacy began to spread in Western Church in the early Middle Ages. In the early 11th century, Pope Benedict VIII responded to the decline in priestly morality by issuing a rule prohibiting the children of priests from inheriting property. A few decades later, Pope Gregory VII issued a decree against clerical marriages. Okay, so folks, that was, that statement right there was key. Very key in why the church pushed hard for celibacy. What was happening was priests that were married, when they died, their children inherited and their wives inherited their property. At that time, the church was going through financial difficulties. So one way to solve that is to confiscate land. So if you have a priest that owns land, he passes away. Guess what? The church gets the property. The church gets all that he had, his belongings, his money, um, anything like that. So that was a huge thing. It was a huge push, a huge issue uh, for why the push for celibacy happened is because the church needed money and land back then equaled a lot of money. The church was a thousand years old before it definitively took a stand in favor of celibacy. In the 12th century at the second Lateran council held in 1139 when a rule was approved forbidding priests to marry In 1563, the Council of Trent reaffirmed the tradition of celibacy. Several explanations have been offered for the decision of the church to adopt celibacy. Barry University's Ed Sunshine told this author here that the policy was initiated to distinguish the clergy as a special group. A celibate clergy became the paradigm of separation from the sinful world. Uh, A.W. Richard Sipe, a former priest and author of Sex, Priest, and Power, The Anatomy of Crisis in 1995, said, The question at the time was, who is the final power, the king or the church? If the church could control a person's sex life, it could control their money, their employment, their benefits. Gary Wills suggested in Under God that the ban on marriage was adopted to lift the status of priest at a time when their authority was being challenged by nobles and others. Protestants early on took exception to celibacy, arguing that it promoted masturbation, homosexuality, and illicit fornication. Martin Luther singled out masturbation as one of the gravest offenses likely to be committed by those who were celibate. Nature never lets up, Luther warned. We are all driven to the secret sin, ooh. To say it crudely, but honestly, if it doesn't go into a woman, it goes into your shirt. American Protestant in the 17th century, fearful of radical religious sects, like the Shakers that celebrated celibacy, came out four square against the practice. The Roman Catholic Church's position today is derived from the Council of Trent. Celibacy is considered as an important part of, of the priesthood, a sign of a priest's commitment to God and service. Today, though, there are some exceptions to the rule of unmarried clergy. Anglican ministers, or excuse me, yeah, Anglican ministers who were already married when they joined the Catholic Church are allowed to remain married if they choose to join the priesthood. Now, please note that the Anglican Church also has women priests. Bravo to them. The Catholic Church distinguishes between dogma and regulations. The male-only priesthood in Catholic dogma, the reversibly, by papal decree, the ban on marriage is considered a regulation. As they put it, that means the Pope could change it overnight if he wished. The first modern scholar to make a comprehensive study of the church celibacy was Henry Charles Leah over a century ago. Leah, a Protestant, critical of the Catholic Church, closed his long book with the following statement. We may be on the eve of great changes, but it is not easy to anticipate a change so radical as that which would permit the abolition of celibacy. The traditions of the past must first be forgotten. The hopes of the future must first be abandoned. The Latin Church is the most wonderful structure in history, and ere its leaders can consent, to such a reform, they must confess that its career, so full of proud or recollections, has been an error. So as we can see, the politics and all of that are just, they run so, so deep in this. And, you know, will we see this in our lifetime, the Roman Catholic Church um Opening up the doors to priests and nuns to be married, I don't know. But we are blessed to have some examples of some faiths, and even one that is considered to be a branch of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the Byzantine Church, that are changing, that are allowing things. Um, So we'll first begin with, since we're speaking of Catholic um, the Eastern Orthodox Catholics, um, a lot of them will allow marriage, and which is great. They leave it up to you, just like the Byzantine faith. It's up to the person, the individual, uh, if they want to be married or not. Now, this is for priests. I don't think it's for nuns, which I don't. I don't know. I don't agree with that, uh, but that's just my personal, personal view. Um, I believe that if, if you allow one, you should allow the other because both should be presented with equal rights. Yes. No. Um, I, I, I believe they should. Uh, but anyway, as I was saying, the, um, you know, Eastern Orthodox Catholics already, uh, a lot of them allow marriage and have children. And, you know, it's no problem. But um, I've spoken about Father Michael O'Loughlin and Mother Natalia from the What God Is Not podcast. Again, check them out. Show them some love. I'll have a link in the show notes. And I'll also have a link to this episode that I'm going to be referring to. They had an episode called Married Priesthood with Father Nathan Simeon Adams. Father Nathan has five children, and he is a priest in the Byzantine Catholic Church. And the Byzantine Catholic Church was at one time part of the Eastern Orthodox Catholic Church, uh, but has been um, welcomed into the Roman Catholic fold, and they are uh, given the options to uh, marry if they want, and if they don't, then, you know, it's, it's up to them. It's a choice. So it's really interesting because in this episode called Married Priesthood, uh, Father Nathan, who is a married priest with five children, is talking with Father Michael O'Lachlan, who is a celibate priest in the same Byzantine church group. And it's interesting to see because the two of them actually have an open dialogue. They're, they're great friends. They have an open dialogue of the, the benefits and the pluses and minuses, you can say, of a priest being married versus a priest. Who's not, Um, you know, as Father Michael Lachlan says, you know, there's a lot of alone time um, as a priest. And, you know, you don't have the support a lot of times. You know, you're constantly called upon to support others. But, you know, people only come to you if there's problems. They rarely come to you in good times. And, you know, we're, we're all guilty of this to a degree. How often do we just check on somebody just out of the kindness of our heart, just to see how they are doing and genuinely want to know how they are doing. And if they need to talk, we're there to listen. You know, a lot of times we just say it in passing, just to say it. And it's something that we do in taking and not giving. Um, because, you know, subconsciously we're, we're wanting their energy, you know, wanting their attention. We're not wanting them to, stop us and say, hey, yeah, I, I need to talk to you. Do you have a minute? But those of you who are in healthy marriages know, as in Father Nathan, know that you have your spouse, you have your children, you have another method of support, um, people that you can talk to and that you're not so alone all the time. Because, you know, a lot of times that Aloneness is quite detrimental, and that's when the darkness can really devour you. Is when you are by yourself and you do not have anyone. Um, it gets really messy and really nasty, and that's why I personally believe that a lot of these uh, sex abuse allegations and cases uh, and situations and incidents um, with priests and and just not just priests but all heads of churches. So, cause it, it goes, it's not just the Catholic church. It's all the churches have issues with this. Um, is that it comes down to that um, being alone in that voice in your head. And, and then again, power comes in, especially in the uh, Presbyterian churches and, and so forth where they do have the option to be married and they, you know, Misuse their power to, um, you know, gain control over other people and, um, you know, require sexual favors for this or for that. And, you know, again, the darkness never lets up And the more you go for the light, as we've studied in last season, season five, um, the more you go for the light, the more the darkness is going to come after you. And the harder it's going to come after you. I mean, you've got to have, you know, your self together. You've got to be focused. You've got to stay focused. Um, As the Bible says, put on the full armor of God. You've got to do that, especially those of us who are in um, any kind of leadership role or teaching role uh, within the church or ministries. Um, even myself, I mean, I have to be very careful because, um, you know, of course, I'm not affiliated with any, in, you know, particular church right now. But still, I am doing my level best to um, awaken to the divine, to you know, make that connection with the divine more and more, and to share that. And that's definitely something the darkness does not want, and will do everything possible to thwart that. So it's something definitely to keep in mind. But I strongly and highly recommend the What God Is Not podcast, and especially the Married Priesthood episode. And I believe there was another episode. If I can find it, I'll note that as well in the show notes uh, and description uh, with uh, Father Michael O'Loughlin and... um, Father Nathan, where they were talking about the pluses and minuses as well. And, you know, yes, there are pluses and minuses for everything. And, you know, one of the big issues a lot of churches have with, you know, stopping the celibacy thing is that the job of a minister, a priest, a pastor, um, any kind of um, leadership role in a church is very demanding, very demanding. So your family has to be aware of that, like Father Nathan's wife and five children have to be aware that he's pretty much on call 24-7, and if he gets a call, he's got to go. And that there are, it's not just a 9-to-5 Monday through Friday job, it's a 24-7 job, um, and even on days off, he can be called, and often does get called, but it comes down to their relationship. You know, do they um, go into that? willingly and openly. And they have. They have. They've embraced it completely and made it work. And do they have challenges? Absolutely. But everyone has challenges. And again, for what it's not worth, for my personal two two bits, is that I believe it should be optional. It should be optional for both women and men. I believe, firmly believe women should be priests, allowed to be priests, There's many that allow that, and it's worked so amazingly. As I noted earlier, the Anglican uh, Catholic Church allows women as priests. The Independent Catholic Church allows women as priests, and they make some of the most amazing church leaders ever. And I mean, as far as, again, I believe it should be optional that if they want to be married, because... I mean, how can someone be um, a priest? And a lot of times people come to you for a relationship and marriage counseling. Um, how can you relate to them, especially if you're a young priest? How can you relate to these people and this couple and give them any kind of advice that can help them? Of course, you can refer to the Bible but that's not experiential. I mean, it's not something that you've personally experienced yourself. Now, me as an independent uh, transdenominational minister married over 36 years, I can give that advice. And not just that, but life coaching as well. That helps in my life coaching. If someone comes up and needs, uh, you know, assistance with marriage counseling, relationship issues, and, and uh, counseling on that level, I'm really good at helping with that because I have that experience to uh, to look at and to share with others no not every relationship is the same they're all different but again having a relationship and working with your uh, significant other to maintain that relationship gives you the experience to help others then, I remember back when I was probably three, I want to say three years old, may have been younger than that, two or three. I remember my mother and father arguing, constantly arguing. And my mother, you know, begging, literally begging my father to go to a priest with her for counseling. And, you know, of course, he was poo-pooing all over it. But you know, I look at that now, and I'm like, you know what? That that was a good idea. To, number one, to get counseling. But how much could a priest help with counseling, other than referring to the Bible and referring to relationship from the Bible perspective? Because they don't have that. Uh, they don't have that experience. And those of you who are in any kind of job. Know that in your field, experience is everything, and yes, you've got to start somewhere to get the experience. But once you have the experience, you are a golden commodity uh, for your company and should be seen as such. And you know, I believe the same should be for for those clergy who are married and um, have a sound and healthy relationship with their a significant other because I know if Haven and I had to go for counseling I would want to go to someone that has experience because I definitely would not trust much of what someone who has not had a relationship for a long period of time and I would say that's 10 years or less again this is just me personally speaking folks um, 10 years or less I, I wouldn't you know put too much to what they had to say um but again that's 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 just me and i would be awesome to hear what you guys think what do you think of this subject and i'm going to put uh, a little uh poll in the thing if so if you're listening on spotify there's a poll that's going to be there that you can vote and it's all anonymous i'm not going to know no one's going to know how you voted but just I'm going to put a simple poll on there to say, do you agree with uh, celibacy in the Roman Catholic priesthood or not? And I would love to hear or see your feedback. So my dear brothers and sisters, I so hope and pray that you have, I wouldn't say enjoyed the show. If you have enjoyed the show, that's great. But I more so hope that you have found this show to be enlightening and sharing information with you that you probably did not know. And I know I went through the information pretty quick, so feel free to listen to the show again, or as I always recommend, download it to your phone, your tablet or uh, whatever device you use to listen and take it with you wherever you go. That way you can listen at any time and you don't have to use your phone or um, Computer data to um, listen. You can just listen anywhere, anytime you want. That's how I do it. So, um, again, thank you all so very much for being here. Welcome to season six, folks. <laughs> Sorry, this episode may have been a little controversial. We have to ruffle a little feathers sometimes to get to the truth, and I always leave the truth up to you. You know, as uh, you know, disclaimer said, don't. Take my word for it. My word is not law or rule. It's just giving you all some information so you can go and investigate on your own. And I highly encourage everyone to allow these shows to spark your interest, curiosity to investigate more on your own. And you decide for yourself what the truth is. This week's prayer request and updates are as follows. Let us please keep Emily and Jonathan in our, and their family in our heart, thoughts, and prayers. Emily uh, just lost her baby a few weeks ago and is still recovering. Uh, also, please keep in your prayers Kayla, uh, who is suffering from MS. Terry, Denise, Nicholas, um, no updates on Nicholas yet. Uh, Taylor and Weston, who just lost Haley. Uh, a few weeks ago, and Taylor's been posting pictures of him and Haley together on his uh, social media. So he is mourning very hard and, and no doubt. I mean, they they were soulmates and you know you can never feel that loss. Um, so let us please keep him and his four year old son, Weston, in our heart, thoughts and prayers. Uh, Maudie, Stephanie, Sarah, Kia, Elaine, Bob, Clyde, Lisa. Lana, Megan, Molly, Gwen, Octavia, Trish, Chad, and their family, Bishop Ashley and his family, uh, brother Abel, uh, Megan and her family, Mike S. and Kelly, Uh, my brother, Michael, who suffered a work injury uh, a little over a week ago, and he is um, recovering from a concussion, which any of you who've had that before know it's, it's a very rough time. Also, prayers for Tanya, Cheryl, Elijah, Andrew, Elijah's grandmother, Janet, Father Mike, Eddie, Eddie's mother, Becky, Emma, Jean, Kathy, Tony, and their family, Michael T, Kyra, Courtney Moore, Jan, James, and Linda. And if you, my dear brothers and sisters, are in need of prayers or know someone that's in need of prayers, do not hesitate. To reach out to my contact information is coming up here shortly at the end of the show and is at the end of every show. I love to pray in our Faith and More family. Love to pray as well. So let us pray for you. So for this week's prayer, I would like to use one of the most powerful prayers um, in Kabbalah. And I will not do it in Hebrew because... <laughs> Don't know it very well in Hebrew yet I'm working on it because it, it, They have it in song which is really awesome So here is the prayer The prayer is called Anna Be Kosh Anna And it is a Blessing that can change reality And this is something that uh, Kabbalists and Jewish People say Every day every morning when they rise so let us pray please by the great power of thy right hand set the captive free revered god accept thy people's prayer strengthen us cleanse us almighty god guard us as the apple of the eye of those who seek thee bless them cleanse them pity them ever grant them thy truth mighty holy god in thy abundant grace, guide thy people. Accept our prayer, hear our cry, thou who knowest secret thoughts. Blessed be the name of his glorious majesty forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> I so hope and pray you all have enjoyed the show and that you found everything that you're searching for in a podcast here and more. Please stop by anytime, all the time. You are family. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on whatever format that you're listening because this will greatly help move the show up so when people do a general search, they're more likely to find us. And the more people we reach, the more people we can help. Also, feel free, please, please, please feel free to share the show with anyone and everyone that you feel might be interested in it and it might benefit. And if you really, really enjoy the show, please consider making an offering. Offerings are a great way to help sustain and improve the show and the Faith and More ministry. Offerings can be made through patreon.com slash Podcast. We actually have three tiers of membership there. So again at P A T R E O N dot slash Faith and More Podcast. And don't forget about our YouTube channel. There's lots of great videos there, and it gives you more of an immersive experience. Just go to youtube.com slash at Faith and More Podcast. Next is prayers. I love to pray in our Faith and More family. That is you, love to pray as well. So let us pray for you. There are two ways to do this. The first is to email me directly at podcast at gmail.com. The second is through our website at faithandmorepodcasts.wixsite.com slash my dash site. There's a form at the bottom of the website to request prayers, And of course, links to everything here mentioned in the show and in the closing here can be found in the show description. Intro and outro music are courtesy of LaFM, L-E-S-F-M, which is at lesfm.net. And the Oblates infomercial is courtesy of Ivy Music. Links can be found in the show description. Check them out and show them some love. So until next time, have a blessed week and know that each and every one of you are in my heart and prayers. Bless you.